Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. Recruit a dream team and be really humble and ambitious and, and really interdisciplinary. Because like I said, we got this multi-stakeholder environment and your, your value proposition needs to resonate across the value chain or else you're dead in the water. Right. Welcome to Newsday, a This Week Health newsroom show. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a set of channels dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. For five years, we've been making podcasts that amplify great thinking to propel healthcare forward. Special thanks to our Newsday show partners, and we have a lot of them this year, which I am really excited about. Cedar sinai Accelerator, ClearSense, CrowdStrike, Digital Scientists, Optimum Healthcare IT, Pure Storage, SureTest, TauSite, Lumion, and VMware. We appreciate them investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Now, on to the show. All right, it is Newsday, and today we have Dr. Nina Tandon, who is joining us. She is the CEO of EpiBone. Is that correct, EpiBone? EpiBone, that's right. Wow. First of all, I watched your TED Talk prior to this, and I watched the video on the website about this. This is, you guys are doing, we are going to get to the news at some point, but we really have to delve into this. By the way, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you've got to tell me about this technology because it's interesting. I'm watching the TED Talk and you're talking about tissue engineering and those kinds of things. And then mm -hmm. I imagine the business, the entrepreneur in you said, okay, this is amazing. This is going to lead to some great breakthroughs, but there has to be a business or a funding mechanism behind this to keep yeah. this really moving forward. So give us a little bit about the story and the background of this. Yeah, I mean, so I gave my TED Talks, I, there were two of them in 2011 and 2012. So it was quite some time ago. And it was around that time that I was a PhD student working in the lab, growing cardiac tissue, which was what I'm an electrical engineer by training. So I was really interested in the electrical signals that are extant in the body and drive things like embryonic development and wound healing. And so I gave these talks when I was a TED fellow over a decade ago outlining the promise of our field. And what's been really interesting is that in the intervening decade, and I had the chance to give an update at this year's TED, actually, to this very point with many TEDsters, which is what TED attendees are called uh, colloquially, many TEDsters, as well as folks from my MBA training and every other walk of life, because my friends and family around really did become every single person I know. We started EpiBone in 2014, with the help of Tedsters and many others. And in the intervening decade, we've now proven that our technology not only works in the bench and works in animals, but also now works in human because we are the first company greenlit by FDA to take stem cells, grow them into tissue and put those, those tissues into people. We did that for jawbones in 20, starting in 2021. And we're hopefully within a very short time window between when we expect to be approved as well for cartilage. 
So we're starting to finally now, a decade later, uh, start to make good on our promise to make the world a better place through replacing parts of our body, not with metal, not with plastic, not with parts cut out of ourselves or other people, but out of our own cells, which is a kind of our own personal fountain of youth. Yeah. I, it really is. I'm down here in Naples, Florida, and the number of people, oh. the number of times I've heard the word cartilage referred to. Well, you're in Naples, Florida, so I know who some of your neighbors are. And uh, there's a really big company there that uh, works with cartilage. So I'm sure it happens. Uh, you, you, that, those conversations come up. <laughs> well, and when you get to that certain age, I mean, it's amazing yeah. how many former runners and that kind of stuff, they're just, they're getting shots to just try to extend before they have to get a replacement. That's essentially, That's you know, right. the cartilage is gone. I know I'm going to have to do it. I don't want to do it. I'm going to extend as long as I possibly can. It, it's amazing. So, I mean, it's stem cell extraction from the individual. So we've gotten past the controversy of embryonic stem cells. We're actually taking the stem cells out of people. We're then and we're growing them. Is, that, is this the technology That's right. at this point? Yeah. Yeah. So embryonic stem cells exhibit a property called totipotency, meaning that they are they have the potential to become any other type of cell in our body. We all started out life as one cell big. And that cell divided and divided again, and those cells differentiated and became all the various tissues in our body, our brain, our heart, our liver, our skin, and so on. And so our body, our adult bodies, maintain a population of stem cells as well. Those stem cells may not be totipotent, but they might be multipotent, meaning that they have the potential to become various tissues, but not necessarily every type. So they're quite powerful. They live in our bodies every day, repairing our tissues. And our fat tissue is an important source of stem cells. Fat gets a bad rep, but a lot of stem cells in there. And also our bone marrow. So we can extract those. The thing about cells, and this is one thing that's quite metaphysical in a way, is that cells don't necessarily know if they're living inside a body or outside a body. So we can kind of take a cell, take stem cells and grow them in a one of our robots, a cell culture robot that we call a bioreactor. And we can kind of trick them into thinking they're inside the body and emulate the natural conditions for tissue repair. And lo and behold, those stem cells lay down new matrix, they multiply, and we can coax them using these controlled processes to turn into bone, turn into cartilage. And then this is the really cool part, put those tissues back into the person. And is, is there, there any, you go. Is there a risk of rejection or because it, if it's your own cells? No, that's no. fascinating. It's your own cells, your own personal fountain of youth. Now, this approach doesn't work for every tissue type, because like I said, they're only multipotent. They're not totipotent. So certain tissues like cardiac tissue, like the heart, just are not amenable to this approach. But skeletal tissues like bone, cartilage, or even adipose tissue or soft tissue or ligaments and tendons are amenable to this approach. And so that's probably why we're seeing so many people take on what I call a spray and pray approach where people are getting stem cell injections and kind of hoping for the best that the cells will just sort of figure out what to do. But we're really taking a very controlled engineering approach to controlling the cell's environment so that they will make new tissues that then um, serve as skeletal replacements like any other tissue we were born with. Will this be the kind of technology that's available, let's say at certain like academic medical centers in your local community, or will this be more prevalent in in most hospitals, do you think? In the if future? we have our way, we will be the future standard of care for everyone, not just for the privileged few. So we could walk into a room where there's 
essentially uh, bone being grown for different patients at the same time. I'm just picturing this room of yeah. all the bioreactors. Now I don't know what a bioreactor <laughs> looks like. Is it the size of a- It looks like a little shoebox. Okay. Picture a shoebox that has a little pump that sort of feeds the bone or cartilage as it's growing. And we have a 30,000 square foot laboratory here in, in Jersey City, New Jersey. And we see ourselves as being the factory, but we can ship those bones anywhere throughout the country. And we've done that already for our clinical trial. We shipped bones to California, to Texas, to all around the country, Louisiana. Hmm? So that's interesting. So they can extract it locally, send that to- Yeah, Jersey ship the Canada. cells. Yeah. Wow. We take two things from the patient, sample of cells and an image. And the image, which is like a CT scan, which is a three-dimensional x-ray, we can extract the 3D data out of that and make a perfectly designed piece of bone that'll fit your skeleton. And we've had patients in our clinical trial that ranged from um, trauma, people who'd suffered from trauma due to, say, a car accident, or folks who were born with congenital defect and facial asymmetry. For me, it's just a lot of fun. It's where engineering meets design meets medicine. Well, do, very you, fulfilling. do you enjoy the scientist aspect of it or the entrepreneur business aspect of it or? Yes. <laughs> yes. It's not a, it's not a slam dunk that something, even though this is really interesting, it's not a slam dunk that, oh yeah, there's a business model here and we're going to be able to make No, it. I mean, it's, of no, and that's what's fun. And also the double-edged sword of being first is that everyone says, oh, it's impossible. It's never been done before. And then. And then we have to go and make the impossible possible. And we were the first and so far only biotechnology company greenlit by FDA to take stem cells, turn those stem cells into tissues and put those tissues back into people. I hope there will be more companies doing this in the future, but we really, we saw that we had, were able to connect those dots. We saw that like, Hey, there's not a lot of people that understand how to grow tissues and Oh, not just how to get it to work in the lab and to get it, but to get it to work in the economy and to get it to work in society. So I think it's really interdisciplinary when we think about societal change and changing the paradigm for how people are healed. We can't ignore society. When I think back about, and there's so many beautiful historical examples of this, but, the, but I guess blood transfusion has only been around for about a hundred years. Around the time of the telegraph, that era, and there was a lot of societal debate about whether or not this was okay. Are you transferring someone's soul? Because many people believe that the soul is part of the blood. And when I think some analogous to kind of some of the questions that come up now in terms of who am I? Am I myself? Where are the boundaries of the body when I die? Does my entire body die or only parts of my body die? And what does that mean for things like organ donation? I mean, I think as a society, we metabolize some of these very deep questions when we have disruptive technologies that come about like this. I think we're seeing this a lot with AI right now. And I think it's, it's, it behooves us as scientists and as entrepreneurs, and especially as healthcare entrepreneurs, to, to try and educate ourselves with the societal impact, positive or potentially negative, that could come about from our inventions and to be really proactive about addressing them. And I loved your question about if we, I think the subtext to your question was, if we can't afford general medicine, how can we afford personalized medicine? Is this going to be available for everyone or just a few people? I think implicit in that is a value that you and I, I think, would share if I had to guess that healthcare is something that should be 
belong to everybody. You know? And how do we make sure that happens? Absolutely. I mean, this is so fascinating to me that you can take, well, you take a picture, you take, you do the extraction, you grow it, you place it back in. The human body to me is just so amazing that it, it? Yeah. it then takes that. <laughs> I, I think of like some of the toys I had as a kid and I would put that thing there and it would just fall off. But in this case, you put it there and the body says, oh no, we've got to, it just connects it up. <laughs> Let's like integrate it. it. Like yeah. it's always been there. That's just, it's just amazing. Yeah. Before we go to an, uh, an article, and we may never get to an article based on this conversation, personalized medicine. So we've been talking about personalized medicine for, oh gosh, I mean, I can't even put a date on it. It's been a long time. Yeah. We've been talking yep. about this. I think ever since, at least since we've mapped the genome, we've been saying, oh, we're going to have yeah. drugs that are very specific to you. And even though we've done the clinical trials on a large population, and we had to turn that drug away because it was only effective on 60% and 40% was not. So we just, away it goes. The reality was it was effective on 60%. And there's a promise there of getting more granular with that type of approach of what does this specific individual, because it was interesting when I was CIO, I was talking about developing the whole patient profile and I sat down with mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. some doctors and they're like, do you realize what you're asking? Do you realize what you're saying? <laughs> and what I was essentially saying is there's more to medicine than just what happens in the hospital. And they're saying, hey, there's more to medicine than just what's happening in the hospital, but beyond it's like the genome and there's things we don't even know yet. And they were saying to me, the record could get massive on each individual person. And I was just saying, I want to know where they live. Do they live in a food desert? Can we yeah. there and they're like yeah there's this whole other side as well where are we at in this do you think we're at in this journey and what might we see over the next couple of years well it's really interesting and in that i think healthcare entrepreneurs are driving some innovation here but so are a lot of consumer companies consumer companies where you can spit in a vial and give samples of all kinds <laughs> and uh, get personalized recommendations for nutrition, nootropics, and even consult with physicians about possible medical interventions around biomarkers like cholesterol or your weight and so on. And I think it demonstrates a real demand on the part of consumers, a convergence of what Technologies like genome mapping and AI in terms of uncovering insights that can be available to providers to then make recommendations, but it's all on the consumer side. It's not, these are not innovations that are being driven by IBM or like the IBMs of the world. It's people, it's startups. And so I think that kind of personalized medicine from a kind of holistic point of view, I'm seeing that happen. My husband is really into this and also now gamifying for him uh, some of these biomarkers. And I think that's fantastic to give people motivation and real-time data to help improve their health outcomes. I think that's just one side of the story. Obviously, I love where I sit in terms of the future of medicine and being able to repair the body using new modalities. I mean, bone is the most transplanted human material after blood. And as a society, we are replacing millions of joints per year, oftentimes because of just a couple millimeters of damaged cartilage. So the fact that our cells grew our bodies in the first place and repair our bodies every day, and we're replacing whole parts of our bodies because of like tiny pieces of tissue makes me bananas. 
Uh, and so I'm glad that in the future, I think we're going to be able to repair the body using much more organic approaches. I think we're starting to uncover COVID made it very clear to people that our immune systems are like a reprogrammable computer. And so I'm so excited to see companies like Moderna and others making customized vaccines that are programmable. The Pfizer vaccine for COVID was only designed over a weekend because the data, our ability to translate between data and antibodies or proteins, the kind of relationship between those various large molecules has been more and more understood in the past two decades since the advent of the Human Genome Project. So there are so many examples of how I think medicine is just transforming. And that's even ignoring the non-human element. I mean, we have so many non-human cells living in our bodies. And I think we're starting to understand the role of our non-human neighbors in our gut, for example, all those little microbes that are involved in our metabolism that aren't in our mood that aren't even human at all. So I think this is just such an exciting time for healthcare and the convergence of these, of technologies coming together, I think will, I, of course, I'm supposed to be optimistic. I'm an entrepreneur, but I hope that my reality distortion field will help yeah. make some of this, help some of this I, come to pass. <laughs> you know, as an entrepreneur, if you don't start out optimistic, it doesn't, doesn't what are you gonna do? doesn't bode well. Um, yeah, you're probably going to be a short seller instead of an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. It's <laughs> Jobs the, for pessimists. We'll get back to our show in just a minute. As we celebrate our fifth anniversary at This Week Health, we've partnered with Alex's Lemonade Stand, a foundation combating childhood cancer. And I've just been floored by the generosity of our community. We set a goal to raise $50,000 this year. I wasn't sure how we were gonna hit it, and we are already up over $34,000 for the year. And we wanna thank you for being a part of that. This June, as you know, we've been doing drives all year, and we're gonna do something a little different in June. We have 229 groups where we bring together healthcare leaders, about 10 to 15 of them in a roundtable format, and we discuss the biggest challenges facing healthcare and how technology can be applied to those challenges. We have an event in June, and together with our chairs of that event, our participants, and our sponsor partners, we're gonna be donating $5,000 to the cause. We really want to thank our chairs for that event, Jeff Sturman and Chad Brizendine. Jeff Sturman with Memorial Healthcare, Chad Brizendine with St. Luke's University Health, network for being a part of that. We want to thank our sponsor partners, Order, Gordian Dynamics, ClearSense, Rubric, SureTest, VMware, and Nuance for also being a part of raising that $5,000. And we want to thank you again for your generosity. If you want to join us, thisweekhealth.com, you can click on the Alex's Lemonade Stand banner on the homepage and you'll get taken to our Lemonade Stand. You can go ahead and give directly onto that page and see some of the other people who have given. Now, back to our show. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, what's it going to take for this technology, your specific technology, to be prevalent, to be widely, yeah. under, widely understood across healthcare, widely available across healthcare, and for it to become the norm in terms of care that we would receive at our local hospital? Yeah, I think there, if there's going to be a few innovations that have to happen in tandem. We're going to have to prove that the modality works. Okay, and then, but that is going to have to happen probably before we figure out how to scalably manufacture these technologies, which will help address the point you brought up earlier around making this affordable for everyone. So I think biomanufacturing is a really important sister field, and I'm glad that the White House 
has acknowledged this and actually allocated some real dollars towards addressing this issue, because that's not for any one company to solve on their own. Then I think there's a regulatory framework component that comes up because the FDA is wonderful at, I think, and is the world's envy in terms of helping to keep people safe from medicines that, that may be dangerous. I think sometimes they can be, they can overcorrect and make it difficult for innovations to get through. So I would love to see the FDA continue to move in the right direction towards viewing technologies like ours as what they truly are, which is platform technologies. Right now we can grow the body's 207 bones and 360 joints and the FDA would regulate us as 270 different products potentially. Oh, wow. So, so I think that's that type of thinking about a platform type of cure. I would love to see the FDA kind of revise their thinking as other types of platform technologies also start to mature. And then finally, I think we need to also consider how our payment systems work. We work in a healthcare system where the key decision makers are the surgeons who are not the end users, who are the patients and are also not the people writing checks who are the insurance providers and governments. So when we think about products like ours that might have a high upfront cost, but whose true economic value added comes from prevented or forestalled um, surgeries, like a knee that needs to be replaced every five years because you're under 40 and you're going to wear it out, that type of prevention. And I think by extension, I think our healthcare systems don't necessarily reward preventative care in general. So I think there's, it's going to be a multi-pronged approach, but this is absolutely the direction everyone's moving. Everyone, like if you were about to get your knee replaced, would you rather it be made out of living tissue or out of metal? Oh, no. I, mean, I know my answer to that question. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've, I've heard that the rehab on it alone is so arduous yeah. that people want to avoid it at, at all costs. At all costs. Yeah. So you're talking about these TED Talks a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, I mean, from the point at which you say, okay, you and your, you have a co-founder as well. Yes. You're sitting in there going, yeah, we can make a business out of this. We're going to do this. From that point until you get FDA approval to actually put this in a human body, is what is that a decade? How long is that? It was for us. I mean, it was, we started the company in 2013. We got our first funding in 2014 and we got approved to go into human in 2019. Then, so that was five years. And then COVID happened. We didn't implant our first patient until 2021. And then we're likely that trial is coming to an end now. And if we're lucky, we're going to be approved in about 2026 to go to start selling products. So that would be 12 years. But I mean, we started working on this. I started working on this 20 years ago. So this is absolutely a long haul. It's a relay race. And that's part of why we wanted to work on bone and cartilage, huge unmet need. The bone and joint reconstruction industry is fast and growing. And we wanted to make a difference in our lifetime, which meant 10 years ago, we thought, oh, we can probably make a dent in, 15, in 10, 15 years. And now here we are. And it's like, okay, we got to keep pushing, got to keep pushing. <laughs> it, it, it really is amazing. So it, yeah. if you get that FDA approval, will you have that much of a lead over anybody else? Who's Oh my gosh, just think about it. The poor souls who want to, it's so much effort and a lot of academic groups are doing great work that makes me very sad that we'll never see the light of day in terms of translating towards the clinic because the skill set for being a good scientist are it's very different than the skill set for being a good entrepreneur at the early stage at the growth stage and at the scaled like yeah. the yeah so it's just it, it you have to be i like to think that we have to be really humble and ambitious 
to have that right mix of humility and ambition to say, you know what, I have a big goal and I know I don't have all the skills to get there, but I'm going to convene the brightest minds. I'm looking at this Einstein picture behind you. Like who is the Einstein of regulatory? Who is the Einstein of orthopedic surgery? And you just to try and recruit a dream team and be really humble and ambitious and, and really interdisciplinary. Because like I said, we got this multi-stakeholder environment and your, your value proposition needs to resonate across the value chain or else you're dead in the water. Right. So you, I don't know. I don't well, know you say, say. You, you we say haven't it, succeeded yet. I was going to say, you say so ambitious. Far. Was, I, the, the other word I would throw in there is patient. I mean, there's oh. it, it just, it, it seems like it, it takes that long. So yeah. we're not going to get to a story, but let me ask you this from FDA standpoint. If I put you in charge of the FDA, I mean, you gave us one thing, you, this whole idea of platform and not having 260 or 290 different products, but having a platform that, that gets certified by the FDA. Are there any other things that you would look at? I realize it's the envy and it's a great system and you can't say anything negative because you have to deal with them every day. But is there any other changes that you're looking at going? There might be more things that go from the research and the university setting to to products that can really benefit humanity if we tweak a couple of things here. Well, thank you for bringing that up. I mean, if I could wave my magic wand, certainly I used my 90 seconds that I was given at the White House to talk about what I, we've already talked about, which is this kind of platform approach towards platform technologies. But I think if I were to also wave my magic wand, I might take a page from Japan's playbook. For example, we have three phases of clinical trials and only after the third phase is complete can we sell product here in the US. The first trial, phase one, is meant to demonstrate safety. And then we, in phase two and three, demonstrate efficacy. What I would love to see is something closer to what you can do in Japan, which is that once you've proven safety, you can start to recoup, not for profit, but at cost, you can start to sell your product as you prove efficacy and you have a certain window of time in order to prove efficacy, if, after which if you don't, you can no longer sell your product. But I think changing, shifting the economics of the business models around drug discovery and development, I think might help us down the line with drug prices. Because what ends up happening right now is that we have to spend depending who you ask, billions of dollars to develop a product just to prove that you can sell it. And then you have to sell it in order to recoup all of those sunk costs from the past. But wouldn't it be nice and wouldn't it be good for innovation if that valley of death was, which is what that gap in feasibility and funding is called colloquially, <laughs> if we could sell product, not necessarily for profit, as we're proving efficacy, I think it would change the dynamics and maybe allow fewer good technologies to die on the vine. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. We don't normally go down this path at this depth. So I really appreciate you yeah, coming on the show and, and having this discussion. And we are actually giving $1 to Alice's Lemonade Stand for Childhood Cancer when the word ChatGPT or generative AI are mentioned. So I just wanted to mention them at least twice so that there would be some money given because- Chat, most, chat, GPT, GPT, GPT. Because so many of our episodes, that's where we have lived and had yeah. so many conversations around. So I really appreciate this discussion. It It's really exciting to see what's possible with technology. And I, I have seen little tweaks and just the fact that you're at the White House having conversations 
And that's that bodes well for the future of, hey, how are we looking at this? Can we accelerate these kinds of advancements and discoveries and turn them into turn them into cures potentially? I mean, that's what the 21st Century Cures Act was yeah. all about. So exciting stuff. Well, Preaching I, to the choir. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I appreciate it. One last question. So I've talked to a bunch of people who have given TED Talks. Give me an idea of of what that's like to give your first oh. TED Talk. <laughs> well, I'm glad that I had no idea what I was getting into because I didn't just shut down. There's a big red dot on the stage and you're not allowed to move outside of it. And I, I like to say, for me, my TED experience was like a mixture of pixie dust and rocket fuel for my career. Pixie dust because it had a way of creating, I think there was a direct path from there to here, for example, because it really helped me. It gave some magic to magical help by allowing more people to know about what we did. A community um, formed a community. around the talk. That's right. And it helps the people learn about our ideas and disseminate those ideas and rocket fuel, because it also helped me connect with folks who could who had the means to help make those creative ideas feasible in the world. I had, you have to practice a lot that there's a saying, I didn't have time to write a short letter. So I wrote a long letter. They're very tightly timed. The longest Ted talks are 18 minutes. Mine were all around five to eight minutes. By the way, there's going to be a third one coming out this fall, the kind of 10 year update that I mentioned earlier in our conversation, that's going to be coming out this fall. And so it's a real gift. I'm so glad that organization exists because I think they really invented a format of, of sharing ideas. And I think the world, many folks have now copied it in the intervening couple decades, but it's a magical place. And it's still, TED still is a magical conference. I was so glad to return to it this year. Fantastic. I believe you can tell a lot about a person by what's behind them on their desk and whatnot. And for the people yeah. who are listening on the podcast, you have all sorts of skeletal st structures and bones. Yes, we do. It seems to be a passion of yours, not just a job. <laughs> it is absolutely a passion. It is. I, you know, you said it takes patience. I don't think of myself as a patient person. Uh, in fact, I feel impatient all the time. However, I think this work has just, I found it so captivating. And when you look at cells under a microscope and realize that they're powering our thoughts, our breath, it's every moment of our life is powered by these little cellular beings. And it makes me grateful to be alive, but also keeps me continually engaged and present in the work. So I would say maybe patience is a side effect, <laughs> but I, I really do love, I love this work and I hope that our, our products become the future standard of care. But I also hope that as society, that we appreciate the living homes that our, our bodies provide us every day. It's a miracle to just take a breath. Well, no, no pressure, but I'm counting on you. I'm 55. I think by the time I'm 65, I'm going to need some of that cartilage. So you got about 10 years to, to get it readily available in these hospitals down here. So I can, I can avoid getting a knee replacement. Yeah. Thank you very much. I hope that's true. I hope you never need what we're making. Absolutely. Hey, Nina, thank you. Okay. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take good care. And that is the news. If I were a CIO today, I think what I would do is I'd have every team member listening to a show just like this one and trying to have conversations with them after the show about what they've learned and what we can apply to our health system. 
If you want to support This Week Health, one of the ways you can do that is you can recommend our channels to a peer or to one of your staff members. We have two channels, This Week Health Newsroom and This Week Health Conference. You can check them out anywhere you listen to podcasts, which is a lot of places, Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, you name it, you can find it there. You can also find us on YouTube. And of course, you can go to our website, thisweekhealth.com. And we want to thank our Newsday partners, again, a lot of them, and we appreciate their participation in this show. Cedar sinai Accelerator, ClearSense, CrowdStrike, Digital Scientists, Optimum, Pure Storage, SureTest, TauSite, Lumion, and VMware, who have invested in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. <laughs>